Report on the investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. Need I say more? Because people have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. This is it, man. This is the moment we've been waiting for on Skullduggery. <laughs> and I think it's a celebratory moment in some respects, and I think we should celebrate by cracking open... A Russian beer. A Russian beer. We've all been waiting for Robert Mueller's report, and we finally got it, and we could only appropriately mark the occasion by cracking open this Russian beer here. Clement, give me your glass, and um, we will start... Wait a second. It's a stout? It's a stout. It's a stout. (laughs) I think this is... Pour in, and... um, Where was this brewed? Actually, it's brewed in normal Illinois. (laughs) What? This is an intelligent... This is a Russian intelligence operation. All right. Let's get to it. Quite a bit to go over here in this report. And on the collusion side, on the obstruction side... I saw a lot that I didn't know before that hadn't been publicly reported, and I think it's going to give us lots to chew over. Give me your highlights just to start out. Look, a couple of significant things. Bill Barr was absolutely right in his uh, letter, his summary of the investigation of the of the uh, report when he said that the uh, special counsel, Bob Mueller, did not find evidence of collusion or coordination of criminal conspiracy to violate federal law. That's right. And I think in terms of just to be uh, fair here, I think in terms of the contacts between the Trump campaign and the Russians, it's not just that it didn't rise to the level of criminal coordination. There, There really there wasn't evidence that the Trump campaign worked with the Russians to in any way affect the election. Right? I just think that's not really there. Um, uh, well, but there was a lot of, you know, a lot of new evidence on the contacts, a lot of new evidence on what the Russians were up to. No question and, about that. And how extensive the Russian and operation that's really, was. And that's really important. I'm just talking about whether there was a some kind of a conspiracy or actual coordination between the Trump campaign and the Russians and, and that they knowingly worked together to essentially throw this election. However, yeah. uh, I think on obstruction... You know, there was all we knew from the bar letter was that the president was not exonerated and that Mueller did not come to a conclusion. But what Mueller does do in this report is lays out, I think Barr said 10 examples, but I've seen other reports that there were 11 examples of efforts by uh, this president to impede. Impede and obstruct. And obstruct. And and shut down the investigation. The investigation. And um, uh, yeah, I mean, some of them actually are kind of chilling. 
course, it starts out with when um, Mueller gets appointed, February 14th, 2017. February 17th, 2017, how does the president react? Oh, my God, this is terrible. This is the end of my presidency. He vents to then-Attorney General Sessions. I'm fucked. This is the worst thing that ever happened to me. And then from there... He makes repeated efforts to make right. sure that this investigation does not target him and that, go that, after right. him. That was the key moment because actually Mueller separates the obstruction investigation into two phases. One, up until the point where Comey is fired. But during all of that time, Trump is being told by Comey as well that he's not personally under investigation. And if you're not an, under investigation, then there's nothing to obstruct. But after Mueller is appointed, he is under criminal investigation. And there is a lot of evidence that he was trying to impede that investigation. Right. And this is actually the amazing thing to me is what saves Trump in the end is that his top aides disobeyed him. They ignored his orders. And Mueller makes that clear. He goes down item by item. June 14th, 2017, Trump learns that Mueller was investigating him, for him, Trump, for obstruction. The president calls then White House counsel Don McGahn at home and directs him to have Mueller fired for supposed conflicts of interest, apparently because Mueller had tried to get the job of retake the job of, of FBI director. McGahn refuses, quote, deciding that he would resign rather than trigger what he regarded as a potential Saturday night massacre. June 19th, just five days later, Trump meets in the Oval Office with Corey Lewandowski, his former campaign manager, a also one-time skullduggery guest, and directs him to give a message to Sessions that he should publicly announce the investigation is very unfair to Trump, that he had done nothing wrong, and he wants Lewandowski to tell Sessions he should meet with Mueller and tell him that the probe should focus only on investigating election meddling for future elections. Future elections. For future elections, not on what <laughs> Mueller was investigating, which is what had happened in the last election. Lewandowski, quote, did not want to deliver the president's message personally, so he asks Rick Dearborn, another senior White House aide, to do so. And Dearborn, quote, was uncomfortable with the task and did not follow through. There's also the case of uh, McFarland. So they uh, could have been ha ha Ehrlichman and Haldeman, right. but they decided not to. So he's right. saved by, by he, so Corey Who would have ever thought that Corey Lewandowski would be one of the unsung heroes of the uh, Trump-Russia investigation for refusing Trump's orders? There's another uh, instance in which... Uh, Trump tells uh, then Deputy National Security Advisor K.T. McFarlane to draft a letter stating that he, Trump, had not directed Michael Flynn to discuss sanctions with the Russian ambassador. McFarlane refuses to do so, quote, because she did not know whether that was true. So time and again, Trump is trying to interfere, impede, give false uh, statements relating to the Russia investigation. And, and, and direct his closest aides, including his lawyers, to go out there and publicly lie on his behalf over and over and over again. And the, the one that jumps out at me is when the New York Times reported that Trump had tried to get McGahn to fire Sessions 
and that comes out in the in the New York Times. Then Trump goes to ses- goes to McGahn and, and says, "Go out there publicly and say this didn't happen, and actually create a false record so that you can prove that this right. didn't happen." And right. what is McGahn's response? Well, I can't do that because the articles were true. And this is just another example of you know the president is out there saying that he's exonerated, no collusion, no obstruction. But any one of these instances with any president prior to this president, you know, if you had, if you, the president had called the White House counsel on the weekend and ordered him to fire the special prosecutor who was investigating him, that is like a, I mean, that's just mind boggling. And, you know, he's graded on a curve. And so, uh, you know, we're just going to kind of blow past that. Yeah. A couple of of key lines in the investigation that uh, leapt out at me, our investigation, this is from Mueller's report, found multiple acts by the president that were capable of exerting undue influence over law enforcement investigations, including the Russia probe. But the president's efforts to influence the investigation were mostly unsuccessful. That is largely because the person surrounding the president declined to carry out orders or accede to his requests. So we talked a lot about Trump being um, collusion curious uh, on this podcast. Clearly, Mueller thinks he was obstruction curious, but didn't get there. You know, more than curious. Yeah, yeah, he was obstruction intent, uh, intent on obstruction, but was thwarted by his own people. There's also there's a lot of uh, very interesting kind of legal analysis uh, that Mueller goes through uh, why he didn't in the end uh, make a judgment on obstruction, and we'll be pouring through the report. We'll come back and talk on this podcast about it. But there are a couple of things uh, that I think uh, leap out at me. One of them is, although it's it's not explicit, it's kind of in dry sort of legal language, but it's pretty clear reading between the lines that Bob Mueller sees this report as a potential uh, impeachment document because, yeah. and we'll talk about this with uh, one of our guests coming up, but I'm just going to read this, I think, because it bears uh, reading a couple of times. We recognized that a federal criminal accusation against a sitting president would place burdens on the president's capacity to govern and potentially preempt constitutional processes for addressing presidential misconduct. So this is really about- That is a clear reference to impeachment. The only real right. constitutional process for addressing presidential misconduct is it's, impeachment. It's impeachment. So, so this, it's important to note because- on this question of of Bill Barr stepping in and making the judgment himself on obstruction, mm-hmm. there is no evidence that I've seen so far in this report, and I should say I haven't read the whole thing yet, that Mueller in- expected, intended, asked uh, Barr to make that decision for him. I think he expected this to go up to Congress. Right. Now, we should make clear that the, uh, you know, of course, the headline for the president is that Mueller did not find evidence of the criminal conspiracy. But there are a lot of details in this report uh, that we hadn't seen before um, about the president's then candidate Trump's efforts to get a hold of Hillary Clinton's emails. There was a whole covert operation that was directed by Trump himself to his campaign staff to find those Hillary Clinton emails. We all remember the famous line by Trump, Russia, if you're listening, you know, I hope you can find the Clinton emails. Uh, which, Trump, which he would later say he was that was joking, a joke. He was sarcastic. But, but clearly it wasn't. It because wasn't. It was something he was absolutely intent on. And uh, a lot of his people were like out there, like doing everything they can, reaching out to folks to try to find 
find those emails. A couple of other things that uh, leapt out at me on the um, on the Russian efforts. First of all, Julian Assange and his role. You know, we talked uh, the other day about Julian Assange's indictment, which had nothing to do with the Russia operation. But Assange does not um, come off very well here. He had, uh, from the get-go, made it clear he wanted to do everything he could to um, defeat Hillary Clinton. Uh, the Russians knew this. And um, at one point in 2015, as early as 2015, the report quotes Assange saying that he wants to defeat Clinton, who he calls a sociopath. So it made it very clear the Russians knew where they could take their stolen documents from the DNC and the Clinton campaign. They had a more than willing accomplice in Julian Assange. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think going through this report, they're going to be hundreds, if not thousands, of little nuggets like this, which we will be pouring over over the next few days, and we will uh, come back on this podcast and share them with all of your listeners and viewers. So this is just a... uh just the very beginning. It's the hors d'oeuvres. <laughs> just, the, just the hors d'oeuvres. Hors d'oeuvres, a little yeah. taste of what's to come. But let's get to our guests and get their take. We now have on the line from South Carolina... Ty Cobb, the former White House counsel charged with dealing with the Mueller probe. Ty, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Dan. So, look, uh, you were the guy in charge of making sure the president didn't get charged with obstruction of justice. Are you uh, breaking out the champagne glasses today? No, um, I'm, I'm sitting here grinding my way through the through the report. Do you think it's a fair report based on what you've read so far? Well, I think the tone is, you know, sort of is prosecutorial, but that's not surprising. And, you know, it does omit evidence that I think cuts the other way in some of the summaries. For example, you know, you take Velnaskaya and the Trump Tower meeting, I think omitting the fact that, as you guys well know, that she had... uh, lunch with Glenn Simpson from GPS Fusion before going to the meeting and a drink with him immediately afterwards, you know, would have added some context. But yeah, I think overall, it's a professional presentation. And, you know, it would have been, it probably would have been 900 pages if they had to include all the uh, balancing information, which is not their obligation. Let's delve into the obstruction issues, because uh, there's some pretty damning stuff in this report. Anything Uh, that you hadn't heard of before? Well, the uh, the president's uh, call to uh, Don McGahn at home, uh, telling him to uh, uh, get Mueller fired. Directing KT McFarland uh, to write a letter saying that... uh, that uh, Quinn did not uh, was not directed by Trump to have contacts with the Russian ambassador. The request to Corey Lewandowski to get sessions to limit the probe. These are all laid out by Mueller in a pretty detailed fashion. And um, what Mueller seems to be arguing is that while they were multiple acts aimed at obstructing or impeding the Russia investigation, Trump was saved because his aides didn't obey his orders. They just ignored him. Well, I think that's an interesting take. And, you know, every event that you reference never uh, resulted in uh, culmination. So Only because his his aides refused to do what he wanted them to do. 
Well, and and that's their job, frankly. If if you're the president and you're you know given directions and one of your aides thinks it's you know not the right thing to do, it's you know it's their job to protect you. But yes, on the other hand, I guess my point is, you know, I'd read all this stuff before. I mean, I you know, and keep in mind, Mike and Dan, that you know none of that information would have been available had the president asserted executive privilege, which he declined to do. Well, he declined to assert executive privilege after he knew that he was being protected by his attorney general, who was not going to reach the conclusion that he committed obstruction of justice. Well, except that all, you know, the, the obstruction, you know, volume two, you know, really wouldn't exist, frankly, had the president uh, asserted executive privilege because the information provided by the White House uh, witnesses, uh, which the president encouraged and advised them to fully cooperate and produce documents uh, cooperatively, uh, you know, all that information. And, and the cooperation, as you know, the report indicates, weighed heavily into their balancing analysis. The fact that the information came from the White House, the law is clear that within the executive branch, that kind of information sharing is retains executive privilege as to any other entity including Congress, under a July 2008 opinion by the Office of Legal Counsel at the Justice Department, which was cited frequently by Eric Holder under Obama. So had he asserted it, much of that information would not have come out, but he took the position that uh, he wanted to be as transparent as possible, and Barr did as well. So I think Barr more than over-delivered, if you look at his obligations under 28 U.S.C., 600.9, which gives him total discretion as to whether at all to release the report, and if so, how much. Well, look, you were at the White House. What are the dates? Remind us of when you started and uh, when you started in July of uh, late July of uh, 2017, and then left in uh, at the uh, in June of 2018. So give us a sense of what it was Which like. Which was after, after everybody had been interviewed and all right. the documents had been and, and your specific assignment was to deal with the Mueller investigation, right? I mean, that's right. what you were there for, to coordinate the responses to uh, Mueller's requests. And in the course of that, you met directly with Mueller himself, right? Um, yeah, I did. Although I, I didn't, I didn't have as frequent interaction with the special counsel individuals as did the president's personal legal team. But yes, in order to coordinate, you know, the document productions and the uh, uh, witness interviews, I did meet from time to time with the Mueller staff. So you yeah. knew you knew where Mueller was coming from, and you also presumably knew where President Trump was coming from. One of the quotes that leaps out in the report is the president's reaction when he learns Mueller has been appointed. Oh, my God, this is terrible. This is the end of my presidency. I'm fucked, Trump says to uh, then Attorney General Jeff Sessions. This is the worst thing that ever happened to me. Yeah, so I mean, I'm I'm aware of that now. I haven't read the report and uh, other documents, but I wasn't there at the time. Were, were you not aware of that before you read the report? No, no. I said I said I was aware of that. You know, from reading the report and from other documents. Was that your understanding of the president's uh, view of the Mueller investigation? 
You know, I think the president, you know, has demonstrated that, you know, he is passionate about his efforts to govern and obstacles. Um, I think he addresses with noteworthy, uh, um, you know, um, uh, anger uh, if it's getting in his way. And so he's had a lot of emotional responses to you know, events that he believes has hindered his presidency, and I'm sure they're relieved that this chapter at least is over. So your primary responsibility was to prevent the president from being um, accused of and charged with crimes, or at least accused, since he probably couldn't be charged under Justice Department guidance. But beyond that, I mean, even those things that fall short of criminal conduct can be shocking to the American people. And, you know, the conduct that you see in this report over and over again includes, uh, you know, directing, first of all, attacking his own Justice Department, attacking the special prosecutor, directing people to lie. I mean, you know, he directs uh, Don McGahn when the New York Times reports that uh, McGahn had had, uh, been asked to try to get to fire Mueller, that McGahn directed him to create a record to say that this didn't happen and to come out and say it didn't happen. McGahn says he can't do that because it's not true. What about that kind of conduct? Because that's all reported as fact in this report. What's your reaction to that? Well, I think that's really for the president's personal counsel to address because, you know, I didn't represent him individually. But I guess my point would be as an institutionalist at the White House is that the only reason that that information is in the report and that that has been made available to the public was the White House's decision not to assert executive privilege or that would have been subject to executive privilege and not publicly available. There are so many details in this uh, that are pretty fascinating. Let's take the Trump Tower meeting, which you referenced before, sure. the, the the June 9th, 2016 meeting during the campaign when Russian operatives go to see Don Jr. and Jared Kushner and Paul Manafort. Uh, they are told in emails that they, they're going to be getting uh, incriminating information on Hillary Clinton direct from Kremlin files. And then we learn from the report today that – and I'm quoting again, on several occasions, the president directed aides not to publicly disclose the emails setting up the June 9th meeting. And, of course, Trump went on to personally edit a press statement for Don Jr., crossing out a line that acknowledged the meeting was with an individual who his son was told might have information helpful to the campaign because Trump is trying to spin this as all about Russian adoptions, leaving out the pressy to the meeting, which is we've got dirt on Hillary Clinton from Kremlin files we want to give you. Yeah. So, I, you know, it doesn't make it inaccurate to have crossed it out, because as two of the Russian participants in that meeting testified, based on what the report says, that the meeting was all about Russian adoption, and it was that was not you know, the a, purpose a of the meeting, meeting. and the president no, no, well, was so, being I mean, so less than the fully purpose of the meeting. Transparent. But that, that apparently was what occurred, even according to the Russians. So, but at the same time, you know, you're talking about a response to the New York Times. You're not talking about a a response to the Justice Department or the FBI. And the president knew at the time, and it's omitted from the report. But Jared Kushner and his counsel had packaged all those emails and provided them two days or three days later 
to the uh, Congress. Well, unfortunately, it's not a crime to lie to reporters. <laughs> Maybe we right. can get legislation or, passed. But or, I, I want to, or, or vice versa. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> I want to ask you about some of the lawyering um, and a couple of episodes sure. that you know I think would raise some questions with people, and and certainly seem to with Mueller. And I think these might have been his private lawyers, so I, I don't know that you were involved in these. But one involves after Flynn, after uh, General Flynn pulled out of his joint defense agreement and began cooperating with the special uh, counsel. Mueller says that the uh, president's personal counsel left a message with Flynn's attorneys letting him know that Trump uh, had still had warm feelings toward him, asked him for a heads up if he learned information implicating Trump. And then Flynn's lawyer said they could no longer share information. And at that point, the lawyer said that he would make sure Trump knew Flynn's actions uh, reflected hostility toward him. Is that just normal lawyering in, in a situation like this, or does that cross any line for you? Well, I mean, I'm not aware of, of that conduct. I read it. I'm a little surprised to uh, see it. But, you know, I was never part of a joint defense, and I have high respect for his personal counsel from... Uh, you know, from Dowd and uh, Seculo and uh, Rudy and particularly Jane and Marty Raskin, who did some very, very heavy lifting during this process. You know, I, they're all exceptional people and highly ethical. So I'm surprised to hear that. I'd be interested in, in the evidence that supports it, but I just don't know anything about it. Well, suffice, suffice, you, you, you wouldn't have done it that way. Well, I mean, I don't think I don't think many lawyers would have done it that way, and you know, I'd be surprised if if it really happened that way. On the other hand, I don't have any information on okay. that. Okay, and the second one is it involves Michael Cohen's uh, testimony before congressional committee on the uh, Moscow Tower deal, for which he was charged and uh, convicted with lying. And in that case, the uh, special counsel uh, reports that uh, Cohen had extensive conversations with Trump's personal lawyers who told him in their meetings, quote, stay on message. And the Mueller report says that the message to Cohen was, don't contradict the president. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know the context of that. And again, I don't have any, I didn't have any uh, involvement. I actually never had any involvement really with Cohen or that whatever activities uh, that he was involved in. It was not part of the special counsel's interests during the period in which I served, I think that came up later after the searches at um, at his residence and mm -hmm. um, business. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I really just don't know on that. But I, I will say one of the striking things to me about the report is the conclusory way that Comey is treated as credible, which I think Horowitz has already eroded in his initial report and is probably going to crush in his uh, upcoming report, and then, you know, the credibility of Cohen, because as I read the report, and you guys correct me if I'm wrong, because I could, could easily be, but as I read the report, the false statement attributed to Cohen in Congress about uh, there being no activity on the Trump-Russian Tower project after January, the only evidence for that is Cohen's word and, their, the, and emails between Cohen and Sater who are the two guys that had, you know, advanced this proposal, and they don't cite any Trump org or no, they do, the Ty, they... or anybody else at Trump on that. So I'm I'm a little surprised at the at the conclusory nature of advancing, you know, the witnesses that uh, I think have some credibility issues as having told the abject truth. 
Well, look, on, on that score, they had a little more than that because they do quote from emails that Cohen had with the personal assistant to Dmitry Peskov. Well, that's, um, but that's Cohen. I mean, and, no, and no, then, no, but you know, there's, there's, right. nobody, there's nobody at Trump or, I mean, this is something. Well, Cohen was, was the Trump's personal lawyer and was acting on behalf of the Trump organization. He's the well, top I guy. I think that's arguable, but you've got to keep in mind that the whole deal was a proposal by Cohen and Sater. And they were looking to profit off of it. So I think when the Trump org says, as their lawyers have said several times, that they, they don't have any internal Trump org documents beyond January, I think and there's nothing in the report that suggests otherwise. Ty, what do, what do you make of the fact that uh, this is something that was being debated by everybody in Washington and this sure. report came out? But what do you make of the fact that Mueller made this choice not to make a, a judgment on obstruction one way or the other? Yeah, I've, I'm surprised because if you don't have the evidence, typically you wouldn't punt that way. But I think it does come down to the exotic theory of obstruction under um, 15, 28 U.S.C. Section 1512 that's laid out in the report that I don't believe is consistent with the way the law is normally construed by prosecutors and certainly not the way not the broad way that traditional Justice Department investigations have uh, have construed it. So I think the combination of the, the expanded view of a statute that's supposed to be narrowly read and the facts that they cite certainly support uh, the Attorney General's reliance on the Office of Legal Counsel, which is the final arbitrator well, of, to go conclude ahead. that there was no obstruction. Well, as I read the report, <laughs> M- Mueller did seem to be saying that uh, – he uh, could not, you know, that he, he he was bound by the OLC opinion that a sitting, sitting president could not be indicted. And then, in fact, one of the reasons that at that point you don't <coughs> accuse a sitting president is because then the president has no forum, no venue to be able to really defend himself, such as a, uh, a criminal trial. I think that's sort of a red herring. I mean, yes, that's a principle, but, you know, he also makes clear, I mean, he had the ability to find an offense a violation, and he did not. So it's not the question of he was restrained. It wasn't the the restraint on uh, indicting a president. I mean, as he made clear in the collusion thing, the reality was, you know, he was trying to determine if, if an offense had been committed, and he couldn't reach that conclusion. And with good reason, in my view, given the Justice Department guidelines, policies, and uh, traditional interpretations of, you know, Section 1512. Look, uh, particularly, I think it's particularly hard, you know, to, you know, this president was assaulted every day by virtually every uh, newspaper of, you know, liberal persuasion and most of the mainstream media and was fighting for his political life throughout this and frustrated by his inability to uh, to govern it. Just hear me out. (laughs) Okay, all right. And, you know, so... The fact that he defended himself is not obstruction. You know, and likewise, on that point, which I do think is important, that he did it publicly. I mean, these obstruction by tweet is just sort of a bizarre theory. More, it, it's not just he, tweets, uh, well, Ty. No, there, there's the evidence here is, that were yeah, not his, that was his, not his public. His attacks on, I mean, if you go through the nine instances, you know, much of the information is things that he said publicly or did publicly. And, you know, finally, you have a White House that 
contrary to norms, produced every witness they requested voluntarily, uh, never asserted executive privilege, didn't assert attorney-client privileges, and produced documents, you know, willingly without subpoena, and and which didn't assert executive privilege over this information becoming available to all Americans, which it had the absolute right to do. By the way, so just I think as the transparency here, you know, is in stark contrast to any suggestion of obstruction. Okay, but just as a matter of law, the right. uh, the Mueller report does say that no principle of law excludes public acts from the reach of the obstruction laws. Yes, that's true, but they also waffle every time they get to the intent. All right, look, Ty, you're a former federal prosecutor, veteran criminal defense lawyer in Washington. You know uh, the norms of the way, uh, of what are expected of both presidents and Justice Department investigations. And it's pretty much been accepted since Watergate that presidents and White Houses don't interfere in Justice Department investigations, that you know, the mere appearance of doing so puts a cloud over uh, the Justice Department. And here you had a client, the president, who was repeatedly trying to do that in various ways, trying to fire the prosecutor, trying to get the attorney general to curtail the investigation, to do everything he could to shut down this investigation. Doesn't that in and of itself, bother you, whether or not it amounts to a criminal act of obstruction of justice? Well, I, so let me, let me um, parse that slightly, which is, if you go back to you know, the efforts to fire Mueller, you know, keep in mind that the president, uh, like many columnists at the time, were being advised that there was no predicate for the appointment of a special counsel because there was no underlying criminal investigation. And, you know, and, well, no, and the president, well, there and the was president an underlying criminal investigation yeah, by the FBI. That the president also believed that there were serious conflicts of interest with Mueller, who had just interviewed to be the head of the FBI and that the president hadn't hired him. Now, I don't necessarily share that view, but it was it, there's nobody can doubt that the president sincerely believed it. And that in the Watergate situation, like the Clinton situation, the obstruction was based on a quid pro quo, where you know they ran a slush fund, got witnesses to lie, and uh, Watergate, and you know engaged in a quite demonstrable cover-up. And in the Clinton investigation, you know the president exchanged a government job for a false affidavit from Monica Lewinsky, and then. Vernon Jordan and the president were able to get her a job in, in the private sector. So there's nothing like that even remotely suggested uh, in this. OK, but going back to your first point that there was no criminal investigation at the time, the Mueller there was, I, th- I believe, there, the, there Mueller, was. the Mueller report, invest- the Mueller report uh, breaks this into two phases. There's the up until when the president uh, fires Comey. During that period, Comey is telling Trump that there was no that he was not personally under investigation. But once Mueller is appointed as special counsel, there is a criminal investigation. Well, I mean, you you as far as the president knew, and actually, and if you look at the columns at the time from people like uh, Dershowitz, Turley, and Andy McCarthy, who's been really sort of particularly Andy McCarthy and. A two-time uh, guest on Skullduggery. There you go. The He's the best. But, you know, those guys were hammering the point that this was a 
counterintelligence investigation and not a criminal investigation. And there's no evidence that the president considered anything other than that until much later in the game. But coming back to my question, are you are you not troubled by some of this conduct by the president seeking to interfere, curtail, impede a Justice Department investigation? I don't you know, I think I think I'm troubled in terms of it being summarized in that way. And certainly I'm troubled. I would have been troubled had he intended or had any effect on the investigation. But I don't think that there was any evidence really found of that. And I think the the president's entitled to defend himself politically. Do you think Um, all this conduct, you know, trying to get Mueller fired, get Sessions fired, attack the Justice Department, do you think it sounds from some of the remarks you said at the very beginning that he gets angry, that that this is all about him just blowing off steam? I think a lot of it is, but, you know, not, you know, not, not all of it. And at the same time, you know, he has the absolute right under Article 2 to hire and fire anybody in the executive branch. Well, he hired you, so <laughs> I, I guess true. that's evidence of that. Um, uh, listen. Uh, are, you, are you suggesting that was a bad move? <laughs> no, 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 not, at, not all. at all. May have been his best move. You were the one who uh, got them to cooperate. Um, listen, I'm sorry uh, you weren't able to join us here in person because had you done so, we've actually got some Russian beer on oh, the table great. and we could have shared that with you. Hey, there's um, Amazon, man. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll uh, we'll get I'll, you next time. I'll take you guys up on that anytime, and I appreciate uh, appreciate the opportunity to spend some time with you. All right. Okay. Thanks, thanks for joining thanks, us, Ty. Ty. Take care. Bye. And now for a somewhat different take on the uh, Mueller report, we are joined by April Das, a longtime lawyer for the NSA. She was associate general counsel for intelligence, and she actually worked on the Russia investigation for the Senate Intelligence Committee as an aide to um, Mark Warner, the vice chair. Uh, April, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks. Thanks for having me. All right. So give us your first blush take on the Mueller report. You know, there's a huge amount of meat here. And I think, you know, if you break it into volume one and volume two, right, volume one lays out exactly what Mueller and his team see as the what he called the sweeping and systematic efforts by the Russian government to influence the U.S. elections. There is chapter and verse in here. What was new about about that campaign? What did you learn You know, I think really what's striking about this report is the level of detail. It's not so much the broad contours, because the broad contours have already been really well described through, you know, investigative journalism, through the stuff that's come out publicly from the intel committees. What's really striking here is there's a lot of information that has not previously been made public. Things that are coming out of the FBI 302s, the uh, investigative interview reports, things coming out of the witness interviews that Mueller's team did. So it's really in the detail um, that we're seeing sort of new information here on the Russian side of things. One of the things that was striking to Isikoff, uh, both Isikoff and me, was, uh, you know, we, we all remember when Trump at his uh, press conference during the Democratic National Convention called on the Russians to find those 30,000 missing Hillary emails. But apparently he was asking all of the people around him to do the same thing. So he was not just joking as people later- He repeatedly asked aides to figure out a way to find those missing Clinton emails. So, I mean, that really does suggest that he was publicly asking the Russian government, our rival, to 
launch a cyber attack and find those emails? Yeah. So one of the things that's interesting, of course, you know, the president didn't sit down for any interview with investigators. He did respond to written questions. And in the appendix for the report, the questions and his answers, you know, are captured there. And his answer when he's asked by Mueller's team, why did you ask Russia in particular as opposed to any other country that you could have name checked in the debate? His answer is pretty much you can watch the tape and understand from the context what I was doing, and it was clearly a joke. So, you know, I think one of the things that we'll see people on, you know, sort of analyzing this report over in volume two, all the questions about was there obstruction or not obstruction, it's going to be these questions around intent that are really hard to answer without having had an interview with the president. In terms of the Russian attack and all the things they were doing, I was like really struck by the detail on the uh, Internet Research Agency, the Russian troll farm, and in particular, how they were targeting these phony tweets to Trump campaign officials. They were monitoring how they were reacting to their tweets. Many of them were retweeted by Trump campaign people, Kellyanne Conway, Brad Pascal, Donald Trump Jr., Michael Flynn. They were all reading tweets from Russian trolls who were disguising themselves as under various names, including 10 underscore GOP, Tennessee Republican Party. They're being retweeted by the Trump folks. And in St. Petersburg, they're watching how their efforts are being amplified by the Trump campaign itself. Yeah, it's really striking. And, you know, that Tennessee GOP account, that fake account, um, is one of the ones that got huge numbers of followers and duped a whole lot of people who really thought it was legitimate. And I think everything you're pointing to really just underscores the sophistication of the media manipulation. And, And if you think about, you know, sort of Russian active measures campaigns, certainly 2016 was a watershed moment in terms of the aggressiveness of that here in the U.S. electoral process. But Russian attempts to interfere with foreign elections have been going back for decades around the world, a lot of it in Eastern Europe. Certainly there's, you know, accounts of previous attempts here. So, yeah, what the IRA was doing, I mean, this was a a sophisticated manipulation campaign for sure. You know, at the end of the day, Mueller does not find that Trump or anybody in his campaign criminally conspired with the Russians. So does that effectively take the collusion issue off the table? Well, you know, it's a great question. And you're right. Mueller makes clear that what they're looking at is the the legal standard for conspiracy. And he walks through why he doesn't see that. I think, though, that there's some really important questions for us as a body politic around going forward, no matter where hacked information comes from? Should candidates be thinking about making pledges that they're not going to use stolen information for detrimental uses? How do we as an electorate look at sort of the really incendiary or inflammatory information that comes out on the internet? And really, you know, what do we do about the fact that memes grab so much more attention than thoughtful, detailed, walkthroughs of written information. I mean, these are big challenges. And I think what the Russian measures, active measures campaign showed was how vulnerable we are. Well, you're, uh, April, um, you're talking about the, the, the virtual piece of this, but there's also the physical piece. There's also Russian intelligence operatives who were probing the Trump campaign on a, on a regular basis. And I haven't read the entire report, but I don't think in a single instance did anyone from the Trump campaign go to the FBI and say, hey, 
there's something weird going on here and you guys should know about it. And so I guess one question is going forward, should there be some requirement that campaigns report these kinds of contacts? So that's a great question. And, you know, you have to hope that there will be some heightened awareness and, you know, maybe more and better outreach on counterintelligence briefings to campaign officials and campaign affiliates around this kind of thing. But it's not a bad idea to look at what other kinds of measures could be put in place, because I think we have to expect this will happen again. Yeah. And, and I th- as I think about it, the problem is, is that if campaign officials don't come forward proactively, say, hey, this is going on, then you end up in the situation that we did, which is that the FBI ends up investigating a political campaign, which raises all sorts of questions that Trump has raised and Bill Barr, the attorney general, is raising about so-called spying uh, on our political campaigns. And so I think maybe by being proactive and maybe doing your patriotic duty and going to the FBI in these situations, you prevent those kinds of problems. Okay, but but that said, I, I didn't really hear an answer to my question about whether this takes collusion off the table. The Senate Intelligence Committee has to produce a report on this issue. That was the yeah. you know, that was the the brief. That was the investigation that you worked on. And given, you know, the conclusions that Mueller has reached here what is Senator Warner and the Democrats ultimately going to do on this question of collusion, which is how this all began? Yeah, so it's a great question. It's an important question. And, um, you know, of course, I can't talk about anything that happened internal to the committee while I was there. I will say we're continuing to see Chairman Burr, Vice Chair Warner, stand together side by side for press conferences and continue to talk about their commitment to following the facts where they lead. I think one of the challenges that we have one of the challenges that kind of gets surfaced by this report in a way is that, broadly speaking, we have not seen Congress really wanting to engage aggressively in oversight of this whole set of issues and how to address them. So where the report on, the section of the report on obstruction and Mueller's analysis. I want to get to that in a moment. Yeah, Perfectly tease up what Congress could consider if it chose to in terms of, you know, let's weigh all this factual information as the Article One branch of government. Let's assess whether there's something here that is potentially impeachable. What we've seen for the last two years is we've really seen many members of Congress, not all. We've seen many members of Congress really sort of hold back and say, let's wait for the Mueller report. Let's wait wait for the Mueller report. Let's wait for the Mueller report. Well, okay, now we have it. Now there have to be some decisions about where is Congress going to step in and what are they going to do with these facts? Because really what we have here on the potential you know, assessment of collusion is we have a set of facts. We don't have an analysis from a political perspective of what collusion might mean and, and how we deal with that. Well, let's move to the obstruction portion, because in many ways, I think that's uh, the most problematic part of the report. I mean, it, it problematic for the president, because there's a lot of details here about how the president sought to impede and obstruct the investigation to get uh, Mueller fired after he was named special counsel, uh, to get Sessions to intervene, to curtail the investigation what was your assessment of the obstruction portion, and does it outline conduct that is impeachable? 
in fairness to all of us, right, the report hit the street just a few hours ago. So this is based yes. on the first quick skim of it. In fairness with, to us as well. With, with, right. with yes. lots more, you yeah. know, close reading to follow. But it's interesting because, you know, in the beginning of volume two, one of the things that Mueller lays out is the reasons why he did not take what he calls a traditional prosecutorial approach to assessing the facts on obstruction. And, you know, he refers to that longstanding Office of uh, Legal Legal Counsel Counsel guidance Mm -hmm. around, you know, not indicting a sitting president. But he also refers to some other factors for why he says, you know, basically, it's not appropriate for my team to make a traditional prosecutorial judgment on potential criminal actions. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to outline the facts over to somebody who can make a political judgment about this. And so against that backdrop, What he then says is, we can't rule out that there was obstruction. And as you point out, he points to all these facts that are very concerning, many of which have taken place in public and have been, you know, the subject of public debate, both by his supporters and detractors, Trump supporters and detractors. So really what we have seen Mueller do here is say, I got a pile of facts, Congress, (laughs) over to you. Um, and, And that's not inappropriate. It's very hard to get sound bites out of volume two because it's so nuanced. Shouldn't Mueller have made a call, though? I mean, that was his job. He was the special counsel. I I still don't get it. Even having read his analysis and the difficult questions of law, that's the phrase he uses, that all this presents, it still seems to me that at the end of the day, it was up to him to make the judgment, not the politically appointed attorney general. So I think, I think, don't know, but I think where he was trying to go with this was not up to me, not because it should be up to the politically appointed attorney general, but because it should be up to that Article One branch of government. It should be up to Congress. Right. And, and, and he, that, which, which, means, is, which means impeachment. They should consider... Whether or not they see the facts set out here as being... Because he, nowhere in this document, as far as I can see, does he explicitly say, this isn't my call this is the uh, attorney general's call, right? Right, right. And and he knows that um, under the terms of his appointment, he knows that any significant decisions that he sends to the attorney general are going to be reported out to Congress. Right. right. Well, actually, so, I mean, there's one passage that I don't know that's gotten a lot of attention so far in which Mueller explicitly points to the impeachment clause of the Constitution, and uh, I'm quoting here, we recognize that a federal criminal accusation against a sitting president would place burdens on the president's capacity to govern and potentially preempt constitutional processes for addressing presidential misconduct, i.e. impeachment. It sounds to me like he's actually buying into the constitutional theory behind the OLC opinion, which is a sitting president can't be indicted. The proper way to deal with presidential misconduct like this is in the political process, i.e. impeachment. Yeah. And, and, you know, in fairness to Mueller, right, he, he points out, um, you know, recognizing that, you know, many have raised the same criticism, Michael, that you did about, you know, not coming to a specific recommendation. He does say it's also really important to make sure that the facts are gathered and documented while they're fresh, while people's memories are still good, while before evidence has just sort of perished over time, so that when the time is right and the investigator is the appropriate one, all these facts can be weighed. And so when I read volume two, this volume on obstruction, that's what I see as this, this attempt to be sort of very meticulous in documenting facts. So in light of that, and in retrospect, how do you uh, interpret 
Attorney General uh, William Barr's handling of this, his four-page letter. And his comments at the press and conference his comments today, at the press conference. basically clearing the president, you know, from top to bottom. Yeah, I, I was disappointed in both of those, in the letter and in the presser. It, it, there was a little too much spin there for my taste. <laughs> I think that um, because if you take at face value all of the facts recounted in this 448 pages, these are a complicated set of facts. Now, one thing that I think uh, Barr did a uh, real service on was underscoring, foot stomping, highlighting, making clear Russia did this, right? Because yeah. remember, in some in some parts of the debate around this, there's still some folks who have genuine questions. Was Russia behind? Including, including the president including, of the United States. Right. Starting with the president. <laughs> yeah. he, he couldn't accept it. Even a year and a half into his presidency, he goes to Helsinki and meets with Putin and he's saying, well, he told me he didn't do it. I don't know why he would say that if it wasn't true. <laughs> right. So, so we have Barr saying very publicly today – that he endorses, adopts, and fully stands behind Mueller's conclusion, which, oh, by the way, supports everything the intelligence that ODNI and DHS said in October of 2016. It supports the intelligence community's assessment in January of 2017. I mean, you know, we're continuing to see reinforcement with ever greater levels of detail that, yeah, Russia really did this. Um, so hopefully this helps put that to bed, even while the political discussions continue on, you know, sort of the collusion piece or the obstruction piece or, you know, however so you want to phrase that. Is there enough here for the Democrats in Congress to keep these issues alive and keep talking about them? Well, I mean, of course, we're going to want to hear from those Democrats in Congress. But I mean, I think, you know, we already know that from the perspective of Jerry Nadler for the House Judiciary Committee, he's got a lot of open questions. We know that Adam Schiff still has a lot of open questions. And I think what we're going to continue to see on the Senate side is we'll continue to see Senator Byrne, Senator Warner continue to try to keep a very bipartisan piece of work moving forward. do you, do you really think they can reach a mutually agreeable language in a report that deals with these issues? That is a great question. It's, yeah. And it's, it's, it's a hard one. We only have great questions here. We I want know. answers from you, you, Abel. I know, I know. <laughs> what do you think? Come on, you worked with these guys. Uh, can they settle on a bipartisan report that addresses collusion and obstruction? I think we're going to have to wait to hear from them on that. I do think that there's no question. I mean, look, there's no question. Collusion and obstruction are the hardest pieces of this because that is the piece that everybody kind of sees as their personal political Rorschach test, right? I mean, that's the piece that is hardest for people to look at in a way that's independent of the partisan implications of it. I mean, that that's just the reality of it. I do hope, though, that this substantially moves forward the conversation on the reality of the risk to our elections. Because again, like, let's look at all these pieces. It's not just the troll farms. It's not just the active attempts by human assets to try to recruit and develop relationships with people in significant campaigns. It's also um, the probing of election infrastructure. So there's a lot that we should be able to come And there may be an opportunity on. here if that is now removed from a highly politically charged investigation into the president of the United States who has muddied the waters on these issues, if that's now separate – Maybe there's an opportunity to do that. One question I have is whether uh, you think that Senate Intelligence Committee ought to um, call Bob Mueller up to testify, uh, or do you think his report speaks for itself? 
I think, you know, whichever committees in Congress it is, you know, House or Senate, and, and there's a couple committees that have plausible jurisdiction over this, right? Of course, it makes sense to have Bob Mueller come in and testify. Yeah, um, and you know, and Nad- Nadler just said that he's going to call Mueller as soon as possible. And, and Barr, by the way. Well, right? Barr is, was already yeah, scheduled yeah. for May 2nd, yeah. I think. May 2nd before the House, May 1st before Senate Judiciary. But I think the guy everybody really wants to hear from now is Mueller. We've heard from Barr. We know where he's coming from. But to hear how Mueller answers these many questions that people have is going to be the real uh, the real news. Let me just ask you about one other aspect of the Senate Intelligence Committee investigation you worked on that's not addressed in this report. Clearly, the report details all the things the Russians were doing throughout the 2016 campaign. They went beyond what we knew before. It was far more organized, far more orchestrated, far more extensive. But there is this question on the table that the committee has been investigating as to how the Obama administration responded to this attack on our election, because they knew inside the White House and the intelligence community a lot of what the Russians were up to. And yet, the response was delayed and not all that forceful. Your take on how the Obama administration handled it and what the committee is likely to say about that. Yeah. So again, you know, I can't talk about anything, you know, internal to the committee, but, you know, a lot of this has come out publicly. You know, there's Mm -hmm. been public discussion around Mm -hmm. and lots of public information made available around what the Obama administration knew, how they responded and how perhaps they could do differently. I think, um, you know, it's interesting. In a way, the Obama administration, I think, faced a situation similar to what Attorney General Barr described today in his pressure about Trump, right? So Barr says when Trump was elected, he faced this unprecedented firestorm of concern about, you know, what were his dealings with the Russians? What was their involvement in the election? You could say similarly, the Obama administration faced an unprecedented level of attempted interference. Um, If you look at sort of the history of these Russian active measures, everybody who's commented publicly on it, DNI Clapper and, you know, CIA Director Brennan and, you know, everybody who was sort of in the mix at the time has all made clear that they were really surprised by the scope and extent of what was happening here. The attempt not just to gather intelligence, but to weaponize it. This this multi-threaded, multi-pronged, multi-faceted campaign. And so the problem with that question, what should the, the, or the challenge for that question, what could or should the Obama administration have done differently, is that it risks also becoming a partisan Rorschach test where it's, it's harder for people to look objectively at those facts because, you know, we have an administration affiliated with one party at any given time. Mm-hmm. So I think maybe what may be really useful is going to be to look to the kinds of measures you were talking about. What can we institute going forward? Can we institute something where, for example, if the intelligence community has a a documented internal policy that says, upon recognizing this kind of information, it should be immediately flagged to the National Security Council, or it should be immediately flagged to the Gang of Eight, or it should be, you know. Well, there's another side to this, which is, You know, some people have raised the question during the campaign when the FBI was learning about some of these things, why didn't they go to Trump and give him a defensive briefing? So it works the other way as well. 
Absolutely. And so so it's possible that we could take some lessons learned from this and say there were plenty of fumbles, some some missed opportunities to be more transparent about this sooner, to act more aggressively sooner. You know, if we if we had done what Macron did when the Russians were trying to interfere with the French election, would things have been different? There's opportunity to institute some policies or legislation that, if instituted in a bipartisan way, could give us a better roadmap going forward. Yeah. Well, maybe maybe some of that will be in the uh, Senate Intelligence Committee report that you contributed to with your work on the committee. We can only hope. Right. Well, April, it's great to talk to somebody who is uh, practically minded about uh, doing something useful for the future (laughs) rather than uh, bashing uh, people for political grounds. Uh, Thanks for joining us on Skullduggery. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks, April. Thanks to Ty Cobb and April Doss for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at SkullduggeryPod. Now you can watch the podcast on YahooNews.com. YouTube and Roku, Saturdays and Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Talk to you soon.